You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is uh, David Leach, the ITK analyst. David, how are we this week? Giles, I'm very well. I trust all our listeners are well and enjoying the podcast. And uh, we've got a great special guest today as well, haven't we? We do indeed. Um, Eitan Lenko, the chair of Beyond Zero Emissions, which has just completed a wonderfully interesting report on the Northern Territory, not just for its domestic consumption, but also the potential of massive sort of um, solar exports. Eitan, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having having me on. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, look, um, look, just before we get into that, I do want to note our new sponsor, um, Evergen. Um, listeners may have noticed a, um, a slightly different intro this week. Um, so Evergen, Evergen have come on board um, to co-sponsor the Energy Insiders podcast, and we do thank them. And, and of course, we do thank our long-standing co-sponsor, Solaray Energy, who've been with us right from the start, and um, that's fantastic. Eitan, let's get back to you, and let's get into this, this fascinating discussion about the Northern Territory. Now, you released a report, it was about a month ago, and it showed a vision for what the Northern Territory could achieve through, um, well, I guess, a deployment of renewables on a scale really not really considered before in Australia, or though perhaps by the people over in the Pilbara, but uh, 10 gigawatts of solar. Look, just take the listeners through exactly what it is that um, you recommended, and maybe even give a bit of background about how it came about. Sure. Yeah. Well, beyond zero emissions, I mean, we're a very interesting organization. So what we do is get engineers and scientists and experts together who donate their time pro bono because they're so passionate about this transition that we need to have in Australia to get to a zero emissions economy. And, you know, we've done research and reports across all the different segments of the economy from stationary energy, transport, buildings, land use and and, uh, industry. And now really what we're focusing on is looking at, you know, specific geographical areas. You know, we take all of that, all of that IP, all of that knowledge that, that not just BZE, but, you know, there's a lot of fantastic expertise in Australia. And we look at a particular place. Uh, what's the way that that place can transition in a way that's really beneficial for the economy, for jobs, for cost of living? And it just so happened that I was living um, up in the Northern Territory last year. My wife's a, a paediatrician and, and she got a job at the hospital up there. And, uh, you know, they've, they're really suffering from this boom-bust cycle in their economy. They had a, you know, a massive um, gas infrastructure project, the Impex project that was um, finishing its construction phase. And, you know, house prices were dropping as everyone was leaving and, and uh, the economy was really depressed. So, you know, all, you know, meeting new people in the Northern Territory and everyone's talking about the economy and jobs and, and you know, where, where, the, where the economic development's going to come from. You know, the government's answer was, um, you know, the gas industry, things like fracking, activities like that. But, you know, I think with my Beyond Zero Emissions hat on, you could say, what are the two factors that, that the Northern Territory really has going for it? You know, one, it's got the best solar resource pretty much in the world. And two, you know, we know that the, the, the cost of, of solar energy is now kind of the cheapest, one of the cheapest forms of, um, of electricity generation. So it just means that we've got an opportunity to, to make the Northern Territory um, 
economically able to do energy intensive activities, which is something brand new. They were never able to do that before. You know, shipping diesel around is really expensive. So this is a, a brand new opportunity. Um, and, you know, so BZE, um, in partnership with the Environment Centre Northern Territory, put together this report to really visit if we built, you know, a large amount of renewables, but not a ridiculous amount, 10 gigawatts, what opportunities would that unlock for the Northern Territory economy? And Charles, it's interesting, straight away, you run into what I think is the emerging issue with renewable energy uh, once we look beyond Australia's domestic needs, and that is it's much harder, as a general statement, to transport uh, than a lot of the other commodities, energy commodities like coal and gas and oil that have traditionally been produced by energy-rich countries and shipped around the world. So. I guess the uh, once once we Australia has a fantastic resource for solar and for wind, uh, perhaps more for solar in the Northern Territory. We could produce enough probably to run I don't know what fraction of the world, but a lot of it. We just have to work out a way to ship it economically, or else bring the energy-intensive industries uh, to where the energy is produced. Well, that's an interesting one because that that was the debate that we had when we went over to the Energy and Mines Conference in Western Australia, and there was the sort of discussion from the Pilbara Hub that we've actually talked about before. Um, 11 gigawatts and now in fact 15 gigawatts we wrote in the last week um, of wind and solar looking at both the export market via hydrogen green hydrogen the domestic market and uh, i think they were once looking at um, a subsea cable to indonesia although that's in the sort of um, difficult basket at the moment but it may be revived Eitan, going back to you and this 10 gigawatt plan what's what's the proposal to use this is this going to be mostly for domestic consumption and this idea that you can build industry in the Northern Territory, you know, heavy energy intensive industries, or will it be for export or will it be for both? Yeah, it's interesting that we're talking about export because, you know, I think the other interesting issue is, you know, integrating all of this new renewable energy within within grids. And there's a very small grid, grid in the Northern Territory, you know, the Darwin Catherine grid, that's only one gigawatt in capacity. So, you know, we had to kind of force ourselves to kind of think a bit, a bit bigger and really that bigger is mainly, um, you know, what we can do in terms of export. So, you know, there's a number of well-known, you know, there's the obvious export opportunities. You can be using um, solar to power an electrolyzer and create hydrogen. You know, one of the advantages that the Northern Territory has is that they already have a huge amount of gas infrastructure and, and LNG infrastructure and trade relationships with, with Japan and Southeast Asia um, who are customers for that gas. So, you know, the Northern Territory geographically and geopolitically, and also in terms of their expertise, are really well placed. And, and in our report, we envisage that the Northern Territory could win up to two thirds of the, um, you know, foreseen upcoming hydrogen industry in Australia. But, you know, there's also the, the, the other ways to export, you know, direct undersea cable, which, you know, to me was one of the, one of the more difficult things to achieve. So it was kind of funnily enough that, um, you know, the company that, that came up to launch the report with us was Sun Cable, who are exactly proposing to do something like that. But then you can also, there's more creative ways of exporting as well. Like one of the things we're suggesting is that in the Northern Territory, um, basically all of the minerals that are exported are exported in their, in their raw material form. They're just dug up and shipped off because it's too expensive from an energy perspective to process them locally. So manganese, for example, the Northern Territory exports, I think, $1.6 billion of manganese every year in, in its raw form. But that manganese is then processed overseas and the value of that processed magazine, manganese, manganese is $5 billion. So by using um, you know, the solar resource they have there to set up electrified mineral processing plants, in a way, that's also exporting renewable energy because that's embodied in the, in the processed material. 
That's, ex that's so, exactly so, what we heard from um, Element 25, actually, at that Energy Minds conference I just mentioned before, David. Yeah, um, Aitan referenced them in the report, Giles, uh, uh, I noticed uh, when I was reading it. I just, I, I, I just wanted to finish on this export uh, mechanism because... Uh, so we've got this debate about hydrogen versus cables. And I don't know how far you got with any looking at costs, but if I just put aside the technical and political issues and just looked at what you know about the economics, can would you do it via cable, uh, a DC cable or via hydrogen if you were just looking at economics alone? It's really interesting. And, and you know, yeah, we didn't get, it, it's hard to get very deep into those numbers at the moment. I guess what's interesting about cable is that you know talking about exporting electricity by cable from northern territory to singapore which is what the sun cable project is um suggesting that's i think about 3800 kilometers so that'd be the world's longest hvdc cable but you know hvdc technology is relatively well understood and technically there's not there's no issues technically it's just whether it kind of stacks up so that's a feasible project if the numbers work where hydrogen um you know we're still not quite at a point where we're producing massive amounts of hydrogen and exporting that out. So it's, it's a less understood technology in some ways to, to scale up to the levels that we're talking about. So I don't, I, don't, I don't think anyone has a really good feel yet on what's the cheapest. And I think that's going to be the race. I think it's really fascinating that you've got the Asian Renewable Energy Hub that's focusing on hydrogen and Sun Cable that's focusing on undersea cable because we're going to have a real world, um, you know, I guess, example of which project gets, gets going the first and stacks up. And you also talked about uh running, I guess, a DC cable, as everyone has, um, from, say, the Northern Territory down to the uh, national electricity market and mentioned the diversity that you get from solar uh, from that. And, of course, you can see the same thing in West Australia with its two-hour time difference. But uh, you're going to need a lot of diversity benefit to overcome the costs of building one of those cables, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. But I think some, sometimes some of these projects you've got to look beyond... Um, you know, just the straight up, you know, on the surface cost. Like, you know, the, the analogy I like to give when you think about that is that, you know, in 1880 or whenever it was when we built the first overland telegraph cable from, from Port Augusta up to Port Darwin, you know, that was an unbelievably expensive thing to do. And there was no business, you know, there was no, no cost benefit that was going to stack up for that. But it's just, it was something necessary to get done. Only one group had ever gone across Australia overland before then. But then what happened is that, you know, it wasn't just a telegraph cable. What that did was actually create a road. And that became the travel, you know, the, the way that you traveled between Adelaide and, and Darwin. And that's the way that the railway line went and, and et cetera, et cetera. So there were a whole lot of kind of follow-on benefits. So I think it's kind of similar. Like we talk about building a HVDC cable from Alice Springs to Darwin to give a bit more geographical diversity to the renewable resource there and to also enable projects to kind of, um, you know, be developed up and down that road. Um, so I think you've got to think about what, you know, all the flow and benefits of something like that are, and it's not always just what the cost is right on the surface. Aitan, um, it was interesting. I remember back in 2011, the um, Beyond Zero Emissions 100% Renewable Electricity Report for Australia was launched, and it was launched by a certain Malcolm Turnbull, who at that time, I don't think he was opposition leader, I think he'd uh, already been um, sort of... A, cast aside by the Liberal Party, but um, he was a member of Parliament and he was very enthusiastic about it. Um, what was the reaction and who did you, you get to launch this time in Darwin and, and, and what's been the reaction? Uh, yeah, well, the reaction actually blew us away. It was, it was fantastic. So 
like I said, the strategy behind the launch was that we really wanted to show that this is an alternative economic option for the Northern Territory and provide a new, I guess, path for the, for the state to take, for the Territory to take. And we thought if we just present a report, that's fantastic, but it'll be much more powerful if we actually come there with people that actually represent capital, people that actually represent projects. So along with, you know, with our team, we also brought along Sun Cable, we brought along um, Jeremy Kwong Law, who heads up Mike Cannon Brooks's family office or investment office, Grok Ventures. And we also had um, Total's head of, um, head of renewables and gas um, in town for the launch as well, down from Singapore. And we launched it at Parliament House, it was hosted by the Minister for Renewables, Dal Wakefield, and we had a few other ministers there as, as well. Um, we had a huge amount of, of media attention. You know, the NT News had it on their front page, you know, $20 billion solar plan. You know, what was amazing to see around Darwin, um, you know, those newspaper advertising kind of stands saying, you know, 2,300 solar jobs, you know, that was around town. Imagine if you had something like that around Queensland before the election. And who, who, owns, <laughs> who owns the NT News? Just to well, remind you. Rupert Murdoch. It's a, it's, a, it's a news called paper. So it was on the front page two days in a row. It displaced crocodiles. And, um, and there was a you know, big article on day three as well. So, you know, I'd have to say it's probably the most positive coverage that a, a, news, um, a news Corp paper's ever given to, to renewables. Um, I, but what they I, did... I oh, it, go on. Go on. No, go on. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say what, what that did is that, that really kind of cemented in, into government that, you know, there is, this is actually something real, you know. They had, you know, we did, a, we did the launch and then we did a business roundtable where we had members of, um, you know, the, the business people and the government together in the room and the government was kind of like, you know, what do you want from us? How much are we going to need to invest? And, and the message from business was, we don't actually want your money. We know you don't have any money. Um, these projects actually stack up. But what we do want from you is to see a signal that, you, that you're serious about taking the economy this way, that you've got a strategy. You know, in the Northern Territory, you've got a gas task force, you've got, you know, executive managers in charge of gas development. You know, there's a whole internal um, structure within government to help gas development happen in the Northern Territory. But there's nothing for, um, for renewables there because they're not hearing from renewable developers and they're not, and they're not set up within government to support renewable development. So that the clear message was, you need to, you know, it needs to be a, a level playing field. You need to also have as much, you know, focus and strategy on developing the renewables industry in the Northern Territory because this is a great economic opportunity, not just because it's a nice thing to do. And I think government heard that message and, and the chief minister, you know, in, in conversations did say that, that they'll, they'll look at restructuring government to, to give greater focus to renewables. You know, Giles, uh, it interests me because I'm always looking at how to progress uh, the renewable industry in Queensland. And I've always thought you need a Queenslander uh, to actually run it up there. You can't have someone like Bob Brown sort of scooting in from Tasmania and getting everyone in Queensland to say he's a lovely fellow. That doesn't work like that. But it's also interesting that there is a very entrenched coal lobby in Queensland uh, and an entrenched um, union there, frankly, as well as well as a far right. Whereas in the Northern Territory, I think the gas industry and the renewable industry probably believe they can coexist and sort of don't directly compete with each other. I mean, the gas industry is entirely export focused and it's and the renewable industry is not as anti-gas as it is anti-coal. 
Well, look, that's probably right too. And, and I think Aitan has just sort of um, also sort of build the cat. If you get on the front pages of the Murdoch media all of a sudden and get to attention of the local local population, although um, that may be unique to the Northern Territory, but I suspect not. I suspect um, if you do get a big renewables project um, on the front page of the Australian or the Herald Sun or the Daily Telegraph or the Courier Mail, then that may focus the attention of Conservative politicians here too. Hey, Tim, I, I'll I just, just say, what's, can I just very quickly, um, what David said, you know, is, is completely right. Like the vested interest, you know, there, there is no ga- onshore gas industry yet in the, in the Northern Territory. So there, there, you know, there isn't a vested interest that, that's pushing back. So it is, you know, I think a fantastic opportunity for, you know, many of your listeners who are in the renewables industry um, to look at the Northern Territory now, because I think the government has recognised that there is an economic opportunity there and they're waiting to hear, you know, from, you know, great ideas that they can that they can support and make happen. And, and there's, I think, going to be a lot less pushback. And can I also really... just say, on, in the, on the other side of it, what was, you know, in terms of getting the public on board, you know, one of the things we looked at, you know, aside from export was the cost of living implications of, of what would happen if this happens. And, and what's unique about the Northern Territory is there's not really that many roads in there. So the Northern Territory could electrify transport pretty easily. They wouldn't have to build a lot of infrastructure and that would reduce people's transport costs um, by 80%. That would go from having the most expensive fuel in Australia to you know, potentially the cheapest fuel in Australia. And things like that really get people on board and they start to see the bigger picture of what renewables can bring to them rather than just switching out the electrons in their, in their light globes at home. It's really interesting what you said about vested interest too because you think about the other um, areas which have got particularly ambitious um, uh, clean energy schemes, the ACT didn't have to deal with an incumbent coal lobby, lobby obviously, and um, very much so in South Australia, which once the coal-fired generators close there, then um, pretty much free to move to what the South Australian government now sees as a uh, net 100% renewables by 2030. Um, Eitan, what you Charles, just said Charles, about... sorry, I just want to point out in terms of newspaper articles, uh, you know, if you can get Graham Lloyd, the Australian's uh, environmental writer, to write a positive article Uh, about wind and solar farms in the Northern Territory or anywhere else. I'll buy you lunch at restaurant anywhere in town. Uh, But there you go. Uh, Sorry, back back to our scheduled program. (laughs) Looks like I'd be stuck with a lettuce and tomato sandwich. (laughs) There was a a positive article in The Australian, David. It wasn't written by Graham Lloyd, though, so I don't know if that qualifies uh, for lunch. Oh, you never know. So, Aitan, what you just sort of... Um, I had two questions, actually. Um, one is the new one that you just raised there about electric vehicles and uh, and cheaper transport. So, um, just my first question, which you can answer, is... So, is there any sort of um, detailed plans being put together now about um, electric vehicles? How seriously are they looking at it? And my second question was, okay, with people like Sun Cable there, I'm just wondering if you can actually sort of tell us what you understand about that project and what the next steps are for that particular element to to go forward. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's a quick answer on the electric vehicles. I'm not, not aware of any plans that are being put in place yet. So, you know, I think we, we definitely put on the agenda and I think it's definitely something that they'll be considering. Um, Sun Cable, you know, it's, it's a really interesting project. What's funny is, like you said in your intro, that 10 gigawatts, that's, you know, a big vision. You know, we thought 10 gigawatts, that's a big number, but it's a realistic number. You know, we didn't expect that we'd be launching it nine months later with a project that was proposing to be 10 gigawatts on its own. We're like, oh, maybe we should have made it 50 gigawatts, not 10 gigawatts. So, you know, it's a pretty ambitious project. They're, they're talking about building 10 gigawatts of solar down near Tennant Creek, about 800 kilometres away from, from Darwin, and then building an undersea cable 3,800 kilometres to Singapore, who are, you know, at the moment powered 97% by um, 
by gas. So, you know, it'd be good for Singapore to be able to diversify their, their energy mix. And they're looking at an interesting um, technology, the, the, the Maverick 5B, uh, you know, prefabricated solar panels, which they, which they, they plan to roll out. And I think the idea is that the undersea cable is is three gigawatts in capacity, and then you know, so you've got ten gigawatts that's you know, charging the world's largest battery as well, and then you effectively have the ability to to run three gigawatts through the cable, you know, day and night. What what sort of battery are we talking about? And um, and and just on five B, what an absolute capture that would be for for that outfit. I I just remember they only launched a few years ago, and and talking to them with their very first. Um, very small rollout, and basically oper- operating at the uh, back of a shed in Alexandria, I think, in in, in Sydney. I mean, just um, a re- remarkably good um, interest story, and um, we should get them on the podcast sometime, I think. Mm. Um, but um, but sir, yeah, tell me more about the um, how big would this battery need to be? Yeah, well, I, I'm not. I mean, I can only talk about what's publicly available, so I don't think that's been that's been released so you know they talk about it being the biggest battery in the world and i know they're looking at different battery uh technologies you know you probably wouldn't do a lithium-ion battery that's that's that big but maybe you would i think that's that's they're, they're undergoing that research at the moment so yeah i, I can only say what's publicly available about uh, i think about in this cable side of things you know that uh because hyd- shipping hydrogen right is a problem it's very expensive from what we know of it at the moment uh probably doubles the cost for Australia to ship hydrogen uh, to Japan over over the already extremely expensive manufacturing cost. I, I'm slow to get on board with hydrogen uh, simply because of the cost and the energy intensity of, of actually making the stuff uh, with the current hydrolysis process. But the cables are very interesting. But when you start to think about it, the geopolitical risk uh, would, would worry me, you know, what happens if the cable breaks or something like that? You know, Singapore might get unhappy. Sure, although, you know, their, their gas already comes, they're already dependent on Indonesia and other places, other countries for their gas. And, you know, a coal power station can, can blow up as well. So I guess, yeah, I'm sure redundancy is going to have to be one of the conversations they have with Singapore. But the, Singapore don't have a huge number of other options in terms of, of moving to zero emissions, like they're not going to be able to, to create, to use their own, uh, to, to create their own renewable, you know, system that's, that's high enough capacity. So it's really going to be either hydrogen or direct import for them. And, and I would think that just as with hydrogen, if you, are, if you go and talk to the people at Arena, they will tell you we need to build up our domestic industry as a proof mm. of concept before we get too big in the export space. Uh, the same I'd like to see with some of this uh, DC transmission uh, we know that the uh, Andrew Blakers has proposed a lot of it, and there's a tremendous amount of talk about transmission that we're going to have to cover on this podcast at some stage as well. And I think a decent uh, DC cable, uh, <laughs> as a proof of concept, uh, 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 you know, of, um, that works better than Baslink has, uh, would would be a decent thing as well. But anyway, that's just me. Yeah, I love. It. I mean, coming from the tech tech industry, you know, there's the concept of. Um you know, dog fooding, where you use your own, you, you, you use your own proposals and technology on yourself first before you go and sell it to a customer. So I think that's a great way for Australia to start thinking. We know that we're in Ireland. We know we're going to have to be, we've got the potential to export through these long cables. And we've got these, you know, little tracks, you know, between Victoria and Tasmania, or even, you know, if you want to do it overland between Alice and, and Northern Territory, Alice and Darwin, sorry, that we could be experimenting with these technologies on. And that's the perfect 
domain for things like, you know, the, the Northern Australia Infrastructure Fund, you know, they should be playing in that sort of arena because they're, they're nation building projects that could give us the potential to be a renewable export superpower. Well, at the moment, Naif, uh, the Northern Australian Infrastructure Fund is actually looking at two projects. I don't know whether they're high voltage, um, H, um, um, high voltage cables like that, but um, the copper string project from Townsville to Mount Isa, which could unlock a whole renewable energy province and probably should have been done five or seven years ago, but the uh, Queensland government sort of outsourced that decision to the uh, wonks at Glencore in, in Switzerland who, who chose gas and now they're finding it's terribly expensive. And... Um, Looks like they're also going to co-fund a, um, a new transmission line in the Pilbara, which will link up more of the big iron ore mines and um, allow a, um, a 60 megawatt solar plant to be um, built there. So um, that's kind of interesting. The, the, the hydrogen thing is really interesting. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing what Alan Finkel's hydrogen um, strategy team do unveil. I think that's actually going to start to come out next month. They're going to start briefing state ministers, uh, presuming um, Angus Taylor actually has the courage to bring them all together in one room, or maybe um, and I think we'll have to take a plane and go and talk to them all individually. But um, that should be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what he actually comes out as, 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 you know, in the stepping stones in that strategy. And it's fascinating, this debate between these green hydrogen exports, which, David, you're absolutely correct. Uh, basically, the transport and handling is double the cost of the generation. So hence the idea from the Butcher Bird Project in WA of actually having its own manganese metals uh, facility there and, um, and and underpinning what um, ATAN and the team at Beyond Zero Emissions is um, is looking for at Northern Territory, the idea of have this domestic industry and then export it. And I think this has been touched upon by Ross Garneau. I think it's been touched upon by Ellen Finkel. And we'll see more details of that um, when it finally comes out. So we talked about manganese, ATAN, but what, what else did you look at in the downstream uh, processing. I have to say the idea in Australia has always been that we dig it up and, and someone else does anything clever with it. Um, but, but uh, you know, and that, that goes for basically every, every form of ore. We, we do very little secondary processing of anything anywhere in Australia and aluminium smelters about as clever as we get. Uh, the zinc, what, what, what else has the Northern Territory got in the way of mineral resources that, that would be suitable for further processing? Yeah, you're right. There's zinc. I mean, there's lithium. There's uh, critical minerals that, that we've looked at, and that, that's you know those strategically important, important but really scarce minerals. So the Northern Territory has you know does have supply of those. So that's things like you know all, basically it's the rare earth elements. So those things do need to be processed because you know they're in, they're in in small quantities, and you know at the moment that we can't do that in the Northern Territory. So. You know, I think having it's really interesting in Northern Territory because there is a quite a bad history in terms of the environmental mediation of mines, and that's something that we that we had to grapple with. You know, when we're talking about a report that giving miners the opportunity to become more profitable, and we also talk about electrified mining as well. And I think really the um, the the deal that is there to be made is that you know if if we can facilitate cheap energy into the Northern Territory through renewables and allow mines to become more profitable through doing things like minerals processing, then some of that profit should also go to better environmental remediation of the mines. Because if you look at things like the, the MacArthur River mine um, near Baralur, there's, lo there's lots of issues at the moment. And potentially by processing that zinc, you have lost less, less um, you know, effluent flowing from the mines and it is, becomes a more processed product and you can do better things there in terms of the, um, the environmental management of that mine. And, and of course, Northern Territory is going to face the same issue as anywhere else in Australia. I mean, 
if you want to build anything energy intensive, like for instance, an aluminium smelter, there's a, a not very profitable uh, bauxite uh, mining operation in the Northern Territory uh, at Gove. And, you know, conceptually, you could put a smelter on top of it. If, uh, and, uh, but uh, I mean, you know, the solar is only going to provide the power for the daylight hours. We're still going to face the other problem Australia has with renewable energy, that relatively speaking, our firming costs are high. Uh, compared to many other regions of the world. Absolutely. But, you know, if you look at, I mean, we all know that the, the battery costs are coming down as well, and there's lots of different opportunities for that. One, one of the things we did this report is look at, you know, the, the other really interesting aspect of the Northern Territory is that 25% of the population live in remote off-grid communities. So we looked at taking one of those communities, Yindamu, and how you power that community with 100% renewables. And, and, you know, you come up against the same issues, obviously. So what we experimented with there was actually a, a hydrogen powered microgrid where you have your solar and battery for your daytime and for you know short cloudy periods. But then with that excess solar during the day, you're generating hydrogen through an electrolyzer and storing that just locally. And then when you need it later on at night, you can, you can put that hydrogen into a generator and, and uh, produce electricity through that. And there are companies that are starting to produce systems like that, at least on the small scale. And I know that, that um, TGen, Territory Generation, is putting together a big proposal, but basically that exact same system on a much bigger scale to power, um, you know, that, that, the, report, that the resort out at, um, at Uluru uh, out for arena funding. So that'll be interesting to see if that gets across the line. Uh, and I think you mentioned $310 a megawatt hour or 31 cents a kilowatt hour for, for the remote community. If you yep. went bigger at Uluru, uh, do, you, do you see much cost benefit and scaling it up or, or, or I mean, it's, it's pretty early days to be talking about cost, isn't it really? Yeah, it's very early, but it also, I guess it also obviously depends on the demand curve. Like a resort, I'm guessing is probably going to be a, a bigger electricity user, user at nighttime than a remote community might be in terms of a percentage of their, you know, their demand over the 24 hours. So they might need to be producing more hydrogen and need a bigger electrolyzer and need a bit more solar, which, you know, makes things a bit more expensive potentially. But yeah, I'm not sure of their numbers. Good stuff, Aitan. Aitan, and look, congratulations on Beyond Zero Emissions for doing this report, and um, congratulations also for generating so much interest, not just from the government, but um, also investors and project developers, and we look forward to um, catching up with progress on, on all those things. Um, Thank you, and if, if anyone wants to download it, they can. it's just www.bze.org.au, and it's free to download from our website, and it's, it's, it's a really interesting read, so I encourage your listeners to go and have a look. Well, there you go. Um, David, just before we sort of sign off, um, anything else to cover off on um, on sort of general news around the traps? You've um, written a couple of pretty interesting articles over the last week. Um, the most recent one just pointing out the, uh, I found it quite fascinating, actually, the sort of the 15 years of heatwave hell that basically pushed up the cost of our wholesale electricity prices by a significant amount um, last year. And... Um, it looks like the market's expecting something similar again this coming summer, particularly with the um, coal and gas generators tripping off left, right and centre. Well, that's right. Uh, the, I guess what that I learned from that article, as much as anything, it only takes one very hot day. Uh, you know, a half a percent of time can add 30% to your costs for a quarter. And those costs end up uh, being reflected in everyone's prices, uh, you know, when the generators uh, reprice things, but also open up headroom for for more peaking generation. I guess, Giles, we're running out of time, but it was funny to see the same old, it's like back to the future again, Morris Newman complaining about wind farms, past the valley and please, 
But then when I really did have to sit down was to see uh, uh, Bob Brown complaining about a wind farm in Tasmania. I mean, you know. Uh, uh. Yes, well, yes, that, that's an interesting one. Look, it's it's one of those things where you've got really big wind farms. You've got to be really, um, really strong on the community consultation, things like this. And um, there's a couple of things that this um, this wind farm developer, these wind farm developers are doing, which is controversial. And doesn't look like it's been properly um properly assessed or you know properly communicated and, and that's really about the transmission lines which are traveling a long distance and going through bob brown's pet one of his pet projects which is the tarkine wilderness which um he wants to have declared it as a wilderness park and which i think would be a fantastic idea so transmission lines going through that i think is um, half the problem there but no doubt the um well we've seen the murdoch media jumping on it already and um, i guess it uh, does sort of confuse the issue generally but um yeah look um we're still waiting for overall policy to move forward we don't seem to have one at the moment um i think um angus taylor is um is back from his holidays because i think he sort of you know shoved one in on um, on bob brown in the uh, in the murdoch media this week so it'll be interesting to see if actually sort of you know comes up with a policy i'd be fascinated to learn what's happened with the um ungi process about all these new generators and um so, so somewhere along the line, we're going to have a half a showdown where uh, we're going to have to uh, understand who's running the electricity system. Uh, is it COAG uh, or is it Angus Taylor? Um, uh, that's that's on the one hand. And, you know, it's some there's going to have to be a meeting of the minds between uh, the direction that um, uh, AEMC and the Energy Security Board and, and AEMO they're kind of on the same road. Sometimes I think they're on three roads that circle back and hit each other fairly regularly. Uh, but, <laughs> I think that's uh, a fair summary. <laughs> but they're kind of on the same path. But, you know, on the other hand, you've also got Angus Taylor running off on a completely separate path and he sets federal policy. So, look, we can't say anything more about that because there's no real news at the moment. But I think everyone can see there is going to be a showdown coming. I think that's absolutely right. And look, I'll take the opportunity to once again thank um, Eitan Lenko, the chair of Beyond Zero Emissions, for joining our podcast today. And what a fantastic story he has, he has had to tell about Northern Territory. I'd also like to once again welcome our new co-sponsor, Evergen, thank our ongoing uh, co-sponsor, Solaray Energy, thank David. And thank... Giles, sorry, I can't get away without mentioning, you probably said it on the other podcast, but what a fantastic job Australia is doing on Behind the Meter. Are we up to nine gigawatts or something? now i mean it's just incredible lowest cost in the world for doing it i mean there's, there's not too many things we can really pat ourselves on the back not the cricket uh not the tennis uh not the soccer uh but you know behind the meter solar and uh of which our sponsors represent something uh is, is a bloody good effort. It's a bloody good effort, though. Um, I've actually got a story out there this week, um, which is an interesting um, study by Morgan Stanley talking about the disruption in utilities. And it does note that Australia finds itself at the forefront of this transition because just the sheer number, nine gigawatts behind the meter rooftop solar. However, it doesn't seem as though we are quite as well or quite as smart as other countries. So we may actually get overtaken because of uh, our inability to sort of adapt new technologies. And on that note, there's another really interesting story out there um, this week about UK's national grid. And it's talking about various scenarios towards decarbonisation by 2050. Um, it's talking about the amount of renewables, the amount of storage, but really interestingly about the role that electric vehicles can play in the future grid. And it's actually really fascinating it assumes that all cars are electric and the role that they play in regulating the grid and also just um, regulating the demand from electric vehicles from the grid. And um, quite a fascinating thing. And I'm looking forward to Australian authorities 
producing a similar plan. But anyway. Giles, I'm going back into investment banking if you can get uh, a lot of credit and make money by saying Australians aren't as smart as everyone else. I mean, I think I worked that out a fair while ago. But anyway, let's 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 keep, maybe I'm just <laughs> thinking, think, thinking personally. All right. Oh, old rivalries, old rivalries come forth. David, thanks very much. Thanks all to the listeners out there and we'll talk again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.